Hello everyone, my name's Tina Dare and I want to welcome you to the Surge Network's Faith, Work, and Rest podcast, where we explore what it means to glorify God and love our neighbor through our daily work and rest. This episode with Ron Austin is the second in our little three-part mini-series on Christians in Hollywood. And I truly don't think I could be more excited to share this conversation with you. Spending the time with Ron to record this and to even plan and talk through um, what this would look like, what he might want to share, just felt like a total honor and joy. Um, Ron's experience and the life that he's lived, his wisdom, um, paired with this absolutely beautiful humility, just feels like a pure gift. You'll get to hear a crazy journey um, from finding himself as a child actor under Charlie Chaplin um, to being a young communist um, and to his eventual conversion to Christianity and all that that meant for his career, his service, the way that he embodied his calling in this place called Hollywood. I'm here today with Ron Austin. I'm so excited to have him join the podcast. You'll hear about the many things he's done, but he has spent um, a lifetime in Hollywood and then in teaching and ministering beyond that as well. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. So before we talk more about your life's work, can you give us a quick snapshot just of your family, things you're enjoying in your retirement phase? Well, I'm still writing. I spent a lifetime writing. Um, It's interesting that uh, I'm 87 years old. I've been retired for two decades now, but I've still maintained relationships with some of my students in the past, which is very gratifying. Mm. And I still occasionally get published articles and things like that. So I hope that will be encouraging to the older group that will be hearing. Don't give up. Don't give yes. up. I live. I live with. Uh, I have two daughters and two grandsons, and I live with one. My oldest daughter. I <laughs> took up care of her when she was little. Now she's taking care of me. <laughs> so great. Okay, so this we were joking as we were talking before that. I mean, this could be a whole series on your life. Um, you have. You started in Hollywood at what age? Well, I w- I was born and raised in Hollywood. Okay. Uh, but people, I, I think, hear of Hollywood as the glamour capital of the world, but it was actually a district of Los Angeles, and I grew up on those streets, and it mm. was very glamorous at that time. It kind of fell into bad repair later, but at the time when I was growing up, it was very glamorous with nightclubs and restaurants, things like that. I actually... And that influenced me, I think. Um, I was raised by, my mother died when I was young. I was raised by an aunt who was a servant to people in in show business. Mm-hmm. The two that your listeners might recognize was Jerome Kern, great composer, pioneer of the Broadway musical, actress Myrna Loy, who was very famous at that time. So I think that I was very small, but I think that kind of inspired me. I kind of looked at this glamorous life and I thought, well, maybe I'd like to do that. (laughs) Very unrealistic. But so that's why I decided to become an actor. And I started acting at 13. Uh, This was in theater. And I worked in theater and usually small roles uh, for about four or five years. It was very good experience for me. And during that time, I met... um, a great figure that would become an icon for me, and that was the comedian Charlie Chaplin. 
Uh, his son, Sidney, was part of a theater group that I was part of, and Mr. Chaplin, I still call him that out of <laughs> habit, came and directed our dress rehearsals. And he was, you know, this is in the late 40s, so he was still a very famous man at that time, and a great artist, of course, one of the great film pioneers, and he was an inspiration to me, too. So it's a long answer that I actually started at 13, and then I was smart enough to realize I wasn't going to be a good actor. And that's when I went in into writing, and it was writing that I did, and, and then producing in Hollywood for about 30 years. So then, oh, then the most gratifying part of, of we're doing the, the whole picture is then I taught later. I taught at the cinema school at USC and had my own workshops. Uh, so that's my resume, basically. So good. So that, interesting. So did you find that teaching actually was, that was kind of your career moved in that direction? Did that feel like it was closest to sort of how you were created? It was the most gratifying because it was the most authentic and genuine relationship with people. Mm. Uh, I loved and respected my students, uh, most of whom were Christians, both Catholic and Protestant. Not all, there were some Jewish kids as well. But we had the religious faith in common, which I didn't have in Hollywood, you see. Yeah. I had wonderful good friends in Hollywood. Most of them are gone now, but uh, wonderfully good, talented people. But religious faith for my generation in Hollywood was almost non-existent, you know. In fact, I was an atheist myself until my 40s. So uh, I was just part of that world. Sadly, it was a world without a presence of God, which I was able to find with my students. That was very gratifying. Mm, That connection... What, tell us a couple of the names of courses that you taught. Oh, well, mainly screenwriting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I had studied uh, playwriting, and that was a good foundation. And my work in the theater was very helpful. So uh, I was able to work with actors, but primarily it was writing. I think, it, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, at USC, it was almost all screenwriting. And my workshops were about filmmaking, so I worked with both young directors and actors in that, too. I had been, uh, in most of the major creative categories, actor, writer, producer, director, I did some directing, too, so I had some experience in all of that. Yeah. Uh, What were some of the significant things when you were teaching students that you really wanted to shape them as they were young writers thinking about going into, um, into the industry? Well, it's an, it's an interesting conversion, interesting to me at least, a convergence of both an understanding of the best techniques in acting with a Christian faith. I think they converged in my case. Now, I said I became a young actor in the 40s. That was the time in which the method was introduced. You may have heard that. It was the actor's studio in New York. It was Stanislavski, and basically it was simply go deep into character, Mm. go into motivation. See, like Chaplin, as great as he was, was from the old school. He was what they used to call a gesture man. You had to do everything just precisely, but the inner life was there with the best of them, but that wasn't the emphasis. It was a much more of a theatrical kind of art. But by by the 40s and 50s, really, you had to go into deep character motivation. 
Hmm. Well, that's what we do as Christians. We, we look beyond the surface. That's what we're commanded to do. That's our obligation is to see whoever it is, is to see as deeply as we can as to who they really are. Even if they're people we don't like, even if they're the tax collectors that mm-hmm. you hate with, our obligation is, as Christians is the same obligation as a good actor. Get to mm-hmm. the truth. Get to the truth at the heart of a character. So I think that was one of the things that was a lesson for me. I hope I hope I passed it on to others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that deep empathy, that that identification with another, that runs so deep with that kind of method acting, where you actually you become that character. Yes, you become one with him, just as we do through Jesus with all of us. We you become one. Yeah. Now, it's, we know how hard that is to do in life, and it's very hard to do in the theater as well. Let me just add another aspect that I think was true with filmmaking. You know, uh, the great Jewish philosopher Martin Buber talked about the I-thou moment. Mm-hmm. The thou is both God, that we meet in those rare moments where we are one with God, that we strive for, but also as thou is the other person. And you look into the eyes of the other person and discover what is sacred about them as well. Mm-hmm. That's a religious point of view. From, from a movie point of view, what I think makes the best movies is not so much the stories as it is those I and thou moments. Wow. Uh, there, there is a moment at the end of Chaplin's great film, City Lights, made in 1931. It was a silent movie in which... Um, a young woman, the, the, the little tramp has helped to find a new life and she recognizes him for the first time. And the looks between the two of them and between the eyes that exchange, that's what makes movies. Hmm. I think it's those eye-thou moments that make really make good movies. Can you share um, a couple of the projects that you have written um, for, helped produce? Well, you're talking about 30 years. Uh, I am, you can divide my, my vocation into two parts. Uh, the things I did to make a living, and I'm very grateful. They were, mm-hmm. made a good living for a long time, and they were very popular. Um, but that was a job. That was, uh, I had some fun doing it, but it really yeah. wasn't so much from the heart. The, the things that I did that were the most gratifying uh, were documentaries actually, including Mm. some feature documentaries. This was a time in which, uh, for those of your listeners that are interested in film history, that was, um, came I would say the late 50s into the 60s uh, called Cinema Verite from the French. The French were, and so the Italians were experimenting with this. And this was the use of non-actors uh, instead of actors and shot in real locations. Wow, well, you yeah. know, that was very difficult. When we first started that, for technical reasons, it was very difficult. The, the cameras and, and film we were using, that was hard. They, they usually needed lighting, you know. Mm. But I worked on a couple of projects like that, one of which I can't claim. I was just one of the many people. I had a producer's credit along with others, but it was really the work of a wonderful dear friend of mine who died, unfortunately, very early, Kent McKenzie. Uh, is still it's called Exiles. It's a feature documentary about 
Native Americans living on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And Kent was a gentle person. He was able to assimilate himself. It took us three years to make the film. Uh, I guess I'm describing this as not only a project that was meaningful to me, but I hope that that young filmmakers would remember this tradition and that uh, it was a way of getting at real people again. So all of the people in this feature documentary, which looks almost like it's a, a regular movie in many ways, are the real people talking about real relationships. Mm. And uh, I think that's still a frontier for films, for filmmakers. Don't go for mm. the glamour truth. Yeah. And it was those rare moments when I had the opportunity to do that. And, I, and I'm not demeaning or dismissing the entertainment. That's good too. That's nice that people can kind of escape <laughs> for a while into, into fantasy and things like that. But the, what was most gratifying to me were those moments. There were a few of the Hollywood products that we had moments like that. Hmm. Uh, but you had to work hard. That, that wasn't what you were supposed to be doing. Hollywood's yeah. emotion. It's not in the truth business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dream, dreams that money can buy. That's what Hollywood, my Hollywood was about. Yeah. Dreams that money can buy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's our, that was our product, yeah. Mm. I think what was valuable for me about the Hollywood experience wasn't so much about the movies or TV that I did, was that I realized that Hollywood movies were a mirror. Now it was a cracked and distorted mirror. It wasn't very realistic, but it was reflecting the real world that was emerging. Mm. Well, it's funny because I'm not a scholar, I'm not a historian, but I think what I was beginning to see in films that we were, and this includes us as as Christians, we were moving into a period of crisis. Mm. By crisis, I don't mean the end of the world or the apocalypse and things like that. I mean just a very difficult time to make important decisions about your basic relationships. And I think the movies kind of reflected that. As I said, they were kind of glamorized, not all, but the best of the movies at least reflected that. And I think the crisis that I'm talking about was also recognized by Christians of the time. I'm not a scholar. I'm just, I'm not an original thinker. I, I, I depended on people. Like for instance, the great theologian Romano Guardini wrote a book called The End of the Modern World in 1950. Mm. So these were prophetic voices. And T.S. Eliot saw the same thing in, in the late 40s, that it looked like modern culture was coming to an end. And he said, if this is the case, it's going to take us generations to recover it. You can't build, wow. a, you can't build a community, a, a culture. You have to, anywhere can, you, you can build a tree, it's got to grow. Mm. Now, these were prophetic voices were more profound than anything I would have been thinking about. But I was seeing this kind of reflected in movies at the time. That, uh, and I think from a Christian point of view, it would be good for us to see some of these old movies. And, and, and what were they telling us? They were trying to tell us in their own way some kind of truth, I think. Mm. So my perhaps the most gratifying aspect of being in Hollywood was not so much what I was doing, but what I was seeing around me and what, what was happening. Yeah. What, do any of those movies come to mind that oh, spoke, sure. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, for instance, the uh, immediately after the war, after the war, 1940, late 1940s, after the Second World War, there was a burst of American optimism. And I mm -hmm. felt that we all did. The war had been terrible, but, you know, Americans, we had not suffered bombings of our cities. We had yeah. not been occupied, you know. So we felt victorious. We were, thank heavens, victorious. But there was this a tremendous um, uh, optimism that and you can see in the movies, like I'll cite one of them, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Mm. If you want to know what, movie, what America was like right after the war, see It's a Wonderful Life. I think in 1946, 47, something like that. But already by the 1950s, we were beginning to see what came to be called alienation. Hmm. Uh, the sociologist David Reisman wrote a prophetic book called The Lonely Crowd. Now, this is in the midst, you have to understand, of great prosperity growing, the middle class, the suburbs. But young people were starting to reflect something that wasn't going right. And I think from a Christian point of view, we can look back and see what was going wrong. It was becoming too much about money and success, and we were mm -hmm. losing the tradition. Uh, not wholly, but we were beginning to lose some of that Christian tradition. And you can see that in the work in the 50s leading in the 60s of two actors, Marlon Brando and James Dean. And the titles of their first movies, for successful movies, kind of tell the story. The Wild One and mm -hmm. Rebel Without a Cause. So if you want to know what alienation looked like in the 50s and 60s, those are two movies. Wow. Um, uh, now, what happened, Hollywood saw this happening, but they saw it from a business standpoint. Hmm. They saw young people were becoming alienated, and they turned it into what was called the youth market. Uh, it were products clearly designed for these alienated young people. Hmm. Uh, wasn't, it wasn't true selling, it was products <laughs> selling. Yeah. Now, I was probably the youngest screenwriter in Hollywood at that time. I was 30 years old, and that was fairly rare at that time. And uh, in the middle of the 60s, when the rebellion, which is somewhat similar to what we're seeing now, uh, the rebellion in the 60s, the, the counterculture, uh, big student, sometimes even violent protests. Well, I was at Columbia Studios, and, and being the youngest, they sent me up to Berkeley to look into this. Mm. And I, because of connections that I had, I was able to get in with some, and even I was 30, I was old. The, the <laughs> moderns trust anyone over 30. Well, I was, they trusted me somehow. I was only 30. But there was a huge rally in Berkeley, a thousand or more kids, maybe more. And if there's any photos of that, if you see the main speaker, you see some guy standing next to him with a tape recorder. That's me. Wow. This is kind of a comic story because I came back and I told the studio what I had seen and they were very disappointed because they were hoping it would turn into a musical. <laughs> because these old guys hadn't a clue, the producer, my producer had been a dance director in the 30s and he remembered those great college movies, college musicals with Bing Crosby. And he thought, well, we've got another college musical. And little did they know that by the 70s, uh, a lot of the anxiety and despair, that's not too strong a word, I think, that was happening in the country, what we called uh, postmodernity, 
Mm -hmm. confidence about progress was being lost. And you can see that in, and I'm not doing film criticism now, I'm not evaluating good, bad films, but these happen to be very good films. And again, your your listeners may want to check them out uh, to see what was happening to America. Now, this is halfway through the, the, the half century that I experienced. Yeah. Films like uh, Chinatown, or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, or... Um, Network, uh, uh, um, Harry, uh, Dirty Harry, French Connection. I, I, these are different kinds of movies, but they all have negative, despairing endings. Well, that was new to Hollywood. Wow. Hollywood always gave you whatever happened, there was a happy ending, even with a violent shoot it up, but there was a happy ending in the mm -hmm. Hollywood film. But for the first time, so these were made by some very honest younger filmmakers now. Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather, for instance. Hmm. But they were sensing something. I, know, I don't think, I'm not saying they had a complete understanding any more than I did of what was happening. Art isn't philosophy. It, it, it has insights, but it's a different kind of thing. And the best of films, the same thing. But I think they caught what was happening in the 70s and the, what became the counterculture. And I would recommend those films if you really want a historical point of view of what was happening. Now, I can only go as far as the 80s because Hollywood was over. The old hardy Hollywood that I knew was over by the 70s. I, I was at the funeral because I was actually in, the, in two studios, 20th Century Fox and MGM, when they actually closed the studio. Wow. Closed it up. By the 70s, old Hollywood was dead. It had been bought up by foreign investors and things like that. So I really, that was a different world in the 80s. And relationship with the audience was changing and things like that but that's kind of my historical overview and I, I i think people can learn from those films yes yes that was really helpful wow yeah i i've got a whole summer watching list now <laughs> <laughs> well i hope you enjoy them because some of them are very well made too. yeah yeah hmm. So you're, you're I feel a generational obligation to give a little history here. I hope oh my isn't. gosh, it's so yeah. great! Yes, I'm like I, we all we all need it. <laughs> yes, desperately. I think I think it's very um, easy to just see what's in front of us and try to make sense of it from our own vantage point, but it's really impossible to do without history, without knowing, like you said, what the major shift when you, when you talked about the major shift that happened that will take generations to rebuild on a whole different philosophy at the end of modernism. I think now, like we are a few generations down the road and just the growing pains of, of the growth of all of that is um, it's really helpful to hear your perspective on that. Well, I think from a Christian point of view as challenging this is we have at least the confidence and the faith and the grace of God that we do not have to succumb to the despair and the anxiety that my friends in Hollywood did. Because as mm -hmm. I said, they they did not for the most part. I, it was very rare to run into anyone that had a deep religious faith. And without that faith, when modernity starts to fall apart, when the idea of progress becomes, you know, anyone that lived through the first half of the 20th century, those would be my teachers. It was very hard to believe in progress after that, after mm -hmm. two world wars and the Holocaust and things like that. So yeah. the idea of progress had been kind of the religion of my generation. Wow. We were confident that science and technology and socialism 
you know, they were the future. And to lose that faith created this despair. And fortunately, we, we know that the presence of Christ alone gives us confidence that, that we, we needn't succumb to that despair. Hmm. So in being in a um, such a secular environment, and you said you yourself were an atheist, how did you become a Christian? What, what's your kind of conversion mm -hmm. story? Boy, that's the big question, isn't it? How, do, how does God act in our lives? Oh, yes. Um, I can only circle the question. I'm not sure. It was the grace of God. But yeah. I think, well, first place, I married young to a wonderful Jewish woman who brought the Torah morality with her. She was the wow. most moral person. Fortunately, she died younger than I'd hoped, but we were married for 40 years. Hmm. I would think my wife's morality, even though she understood that I was an atheist, I was actually a young communist at that time. I, hmm. um, that was, she taught me there was a difference between good and evil, whether I wanted to hear it or not. Yeah. But then there was another experience I had. Um, I think in our preliminary talks, Tina, I think I told you that I had been blacklisted at one time. Yes. Okay. Um, that meant that I lost my job in the studios and had to find, I had a wife and children to support at that time as young yeah. as I was. And really quick, can you, for people that don't know what that means, can well, I you don't know just... how quick I can be about yeah. it, it's <laughs> yeah. succinct. Um, there was a very unrealistic utopian idea about communism in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. People hadn't realized what a horrible regime the Soviet Union was. There was yeah. still this extremely naive idea that scientific socialism would be the future. And in my college years in the 50s, I fell into that. Mm -hmm. And they, many of these were good people, but they were completely unrealistic. And fortunately, I came to realize I was a young communist. I was part of the Young Communist League. And we were under party discipline. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came to realize that this was, this was an illusion. And so ironically, I had quit the party by 56. But because of my affiliation, I was still blacklisted in 58. Wow. Because by that time, Hollywood was trying to cleanse, cleanse itself of any communists or anyone's, it was a hysterical time. People that weren't even being communists were being blacklisted. But if mm. you had any kind of suspicion about you, the studio blacklisted you and I was fired from my job. I could go into more on that, but it's a, it's a piece of, nasty piece of history that was really, uh, it was due to the hysteria of the beginning of, of, of the Cold War. Yeah. But anyway, I had to find another job uh, and I was desperate, so I went to the unemployment office, and they said, I had a college degree, so they said, well, will you be willing to work as a social worker in the poorest part of Los Angeles, because we mm -hmm. have jobs there, and I said, you bet. <laughs> I take any job at that time. Yeah. So for three years, maybe more, I was a social worker among the poorest people. Now, I had been from a poor family myself in the Depression. Hmm. But our poverty was simply economic. We didn't have money. Uh, we had enough to eat, but our neighbors were poor. We had family. We had community. We weren't poor in the modern, what came to be the modern sense of the world. What I discovered in those years working with real poverty 
that poverty runs deeper than economics. Hmm. Poverty. There is a, uh, a poverty of relationships, particularly when families break up. Hmm. I think that was the seeds of my conversion. Now, it wow. didn't place for another 20, no, no, well, less than 20 years, maybe another 10 years. Um, I think my conversion was based on relationships with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate. I became a Roman Catholic. Primarily, I don't make a big distinction between the dom- denominations. We're all Christians. Yeah. I became a Roman Catholic because I met a couple of remarkable priests. Include One was a monk, brilliant mm-hmm. man. He was an influence on me. What was his name? Hmm? What was his name? His name? Yeah. Well, he's not well known. Um, oh, my golly. Uh, what was Father? Uh, oh, golly. My memory isn't what I used oh, to Oh, no. Uh, Dennis Meehan. Oh, okay. Works a little slowly. He was a uh, Cistercian monk. Hmm. Brilliant. Irish. Wow. And uh, quite an influence. And then there were some others. I met some Franciscans. I love St. Francis. You know, they were an yeah. influence. Also, the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich, the Lutheran, I heard him speak, and the prejudice we had about Christians in the 50s is that they were nice people, they just weren't too bright, you know, they were kind of out of it, you know. Well, anyone that listened to Paul Tillich speak, get over it, he was brilliant. So, uh, and he, he was part of a dialogue with my philosophy professor at UCLA, who was also a guy. And I came aware of thinking, okay, well, you got to rethink this. <laughs> These yeah. people are pretty darn smart. And of course, the monks spoke like 12 languages or something like that. So once I go over that silly prejudice, that opened the door too. But it wasn't books. It was, it was people looking at people and how they lived their life. And I think that's what we should be doing now. I don't think our, it's going to be our movies or our books or our lectures. It's going to be people looking at us and how we live and how we relate to each other and what our families are like and how do we raise our kids. We're silent movies in that respect. We're models. And I think that's going to be far more important and then the books are wonderful. You know, we can learn from all of that. But I think our challenge now is to live the Christian life so that people can see it. See yeah. it very clearly. Yeah. Hmm. That's a long answer that I never did really tell you. When <laughs> I became a Christian. I, it, it was just a leap of faith. Some prayers were answered, and I realized prayers were real. Were real mm. lines. Yeah. I'm just grateful. It's a mystery, isn't it? It's really a mystery, isn't oh, it, how it, God chooses, and I'm just grateful for it. Yeah, it sure is. So do you do you feel like there was a, a, a pretty immediate or a gradual shift with the way that you engaged, you know, your work or the larger understanding of entertainment once you became a Christian? Was, was there, I'm, I'm not sure, was there a dramatic point you mean or it was a slow process with me yeah is that what you were asking yeah yeah what did that look like so thinking about it was very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because I was producing now let me see if I have the chronology right here I was involved with a couple of big popular tv shows and I was making good living and things like that but I felt I was living a very artificial life Mm -hmm. and the more that I was coming close to a conversion and realizing well, I'm on the spot. I've got to make a choice here. Either this is true or it isn't. 
Yeah. But do, I wasn't about to tell, and, and these were good friends. They were good, sincere people. But religion, as I told you, was just, it was like telling them I was going to become a, a, a circus performer. I mean, it's <laughs> a strange thing. They wouldn't be antagonistic as much as possible by it. So I, I kind of kept it. I didn't advertise it. But it became extremely uncomfortable for me to be living in this glamorous world with very false values until finally I was able to, to leave. And I, it actually my conversion, and I don't feel at all regretful or sorry for myself. I was making a very comfortable living. I was quite capable of leaving, but I had to, uh, I had to get out of there. I, it, was, it was schizophrenic being in the glamour capital and be, trying to live a Christian life. And you know, it was my Jewish wife who was really supportive. Now okay. you would, my telling her, well, I'm going to quit my, where I'm not going to be working in Hollywood anymore. We were, we were financially well off, but still, you know, that was some insecurity, but boy, she was, she was solidly behind it, you know, mm. and she knew that that's what I needed to do. And what I did, I stayed in Hollywood, but, but I became a prison chaplain. And I then I worked for many years with the homeless in Hollywood. Uh, this was a time in which Hollywood, I don't know what it's like now, I think it's recovered to some extent, but Hollywood as a district, it turned into a very poor district. Hollywood and Vine, once the glamour intersection, was filled with homeless people at that time, mm -hmm. mainly drug addicts, a lot of mentally ill. And for several years, working through the church, um, we provided shelter and, and counseling for homeless people. Mm -hmm my most gratifying parts of my life. You know, that was the work that I really felt was the most meaningful. Yeah. Wow. And that, that in the prison. So I was very, I feel very fortunate. Hollywood uh, enabled me to be able to do that work. You know? Yeah. And to see both sides, like you said, the, the glamour and then the, the underside, the, um, yeah, the very not glamorous side, but in the same place, in this place you grew up, you got to know it all. And you, your Christian faith allowed you to release that pursuit of the glamour in order to see, you know, where, yeah, where God had you to, yeah. to serve. You, you, yeah. you put it very well. Yes, indeed. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. what happened. But it was a gradual process. Uh, it meant changing my life. And I think Many Christians that are still, you know, good church going people, I think we're at a time we're all going to have to consider just how we're living our life. And maybe this particular time of crisis is a time for us to feel free to change our lives, to maybe move to another level. That's what we're called to do, I think, as Christians, um, to be free. We're, we're, we're freed by our faith to take chances. We don't have to be worried about freedom. The greatest freedom fighter in the world was Jesus of Nazareth. You know, mm -hmm. he freed us from sin. So if we want to try a new way of life, as I was finally able to do, we should feel free to do so. We, we have the faith and confidence to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's where we're, we're kind of at right now. Yeah. <laughs> And so beautiful to even think that God doesn't let these things go to waste. You you laid that down to you know to say at the altar to to follow Christ into these places of suffering, but still you're able to write and speak and give all this insight into 
you know, the media, the entertainment side of Hollywood through your work that helps shape people significantly. So that work is still bearing fruit. Um, let me say, I, I appreciate your saying that. And let me, let me say something, because there may be younger Christians hearing us, listening to what I'm saying. And I, 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 I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to give the impression that uh, I'm trying to impose any particular point of view. Let me tell you what I tell my students about being a Christian now, whether it's in the arts. I think we have basically three choices, and they're going to come out of our experience. Hmm. And they're all good choices. They're all to be respected. And and I have good friends who made all of these choices. Very succinctly, they're what I call reform, restoration, and the desert path. Now, reform are, the reformers are good people, uh, honest people who see American society as it is, its institutions, cultural, political, as basically sound. It's still on good sound foundations, and the thing to do is simply to work hard to make it better, to, to reform it, you know. And I support these people, and I think they see this out of their own life experience. I think most Christians now, including Christian artists, feel that reform isn't going to quite be enough. Mm. We've gone down the wrong path too long for just reform to work. They feel we need to restore the moral foundations that this country once had. It was built on Christian moral foundations. Mm. Somewhere along this path that I talk 50s, 60s, 70s, that moral foundation has been lost to some extent for a lot of people. It isn't being taught in the schools anymore, for instance, in the public schools. So these people feel that first we must restore a moral foundation to the culture, and then we can start doing the good work again. But then there's a third group, and I must confess that I'm inclined to this point of view, that feel as much as I respect and honor and love the reformers and the restorationists, I just don't think it's going to happen. Hmm. I think it's going to be, I hope it will happen. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we can restore the moral foundations of our country. I wouldn't count on it. There's a lot of resistance to it. There's a lot of even resentment that we're going to experience if we as Christians are advocating a Christian way of life. We've been through this before. Christians are not always popular when you're trying to change a society. Hmm. So there's a third path, and that's what we were talking about before, of just living a good Christian life as a model. And don't worry about fitting into the society, whether you're assimilated or not. It's not going to be easy. And I think it's going to depend upon building community. This is too tough to do by yourself. If you're going to try and go and live a, what I would call a radical Christian life, really based on the Beatitudes and things like that, we need each other. So I think perhaps it's presumptuous of me at my age to think I can look into the future very much, but I think the future is going to be building community, real community. Wow. Just going to church once a week isn't quite a quite a community. It's got to be much more fundamental, even in terms of possibly, well, certainly educating kids together, but also maybe economic. Like, for instance, film, film artists now and other artists really ought to form collectives. This has happened before, where artists help each other, even financially and things like that. 
this might be this this sounds utopian and and it's very hard but i think it actually may be the most realistic of the alternatives given these circumstances but again that's based on my experiences and and i think we have to respect the other alternatives other paths as well Mm -hmm. makes sense to me when you when you were talking about the freedom to take chances that jesus offers us that requires that community like you said, the, the, a collective creates freedom to do new things when you have the support financially and otherwise from a community that shares that vision together, would you say? Yes. Yeah, that's part of our history too. Building mm-hmm. community is, is part of the history of, of, of Christianity. Hmm. I would love to hear, so as we you know, hopefully press towards creating these communities, whether it is artists or filmmakers that are trying to create art that that tells the truth um, or whether it's communities raising children together that are trying to figure out how to engage entertainment and media and the arts um, through you know a biblical worldview or through our our faith what what would you have to share with us about how how we can live at that space between our faith and um and kind of the larger culture the, or arts? Well, I can really talk more about the arts than I can the other, although I think building r- communities based on family, which is the root of community, is probably the starting point. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that artists would then be part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for artists simply to go off on their own, which I'm urging they do, they shouldn't stay off by their own. You want That becomes art for art's sake. And artists... Artists need other people to really fulfill themselves. As far as the faith communities, I am hearing, um, I'm not directly involved with any of this, I am hearing that there are young people, and not just Christians, who are forming kind of, uh, I guess in my day they would have called them nature communes, but they're ecologically based uh, communities. Some in the East are small, but there's several of them, I understand. And they're trying to learn how to live a simpler life, yeah. not so much based on consumerism and things like that. That sounds promising to me. Wow. The challenge with the art communities, these will be actually an art, a challenge that every artist's faith uh, face. And I think it's particularly of artists of faith now. The principle of art, the ancient, going back to the Greece, the Greeks is the unity of form and content. Mm. They're inseparable. Yep. The, the content of what you're trying to say, isn't, it isn't a speech, it isn't a book, it isn't uh, something like an encyclopedia. It's, it has to take artistic form, and it may take the form of music or poetry, but it's a, it, it's a distinct form. But on the other hand, that form then reshapes the content. It's a little like the relationship between body and soul. You can't separate the two. One is part of the other. They're, they're a oneness together. And yeah. that's true with form and content. And I think the challenge Christian artists face now are what are the new forms that they were going to need? For instance, I think it would be very Hollywood. I have some of my students that are trying to work in the Hollywood industry. But are they going to have to work in the forms of Hollywood movies? I don't think mm. that's going to work in terms of Christian content because it will change the way you tell a story. 
It will change, it could even change acting styles and things like that. It's inseparable from uh, the form and the content. So I think these communities can help each other with genuine experimentation, trying it, but that's why it also should be connected with the uh, other people because you're not making it for yourself. What is it that you're trying to mm -hmm. say to other people? Just starting with other Christians. What are, what are the truths we're trying to say to each other? And what form should that take? Poetry is a good example because a poetry isn't a speech. If, it's, if we're starting just to do preaching, the poet, well, then it's didactic. And it's, you know, we've heard it before. Poetry mm -hmm. goes beyond words in a way. There's a, a, a music to it. It's part of the, mm -hmm. the form, too. That's true with filmmaking. Best with filmmaking, too. So I can't separate the idea of what artists, will, how they will come together with the challenge that they're going to help and, 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 and help each other face. That's, it makes me think that we as the larger community of faith have a responsibility to help support and um, inform and come alongside our artists so that they can create something that reflects our larger um, our larger community in a way that only they can do. Well, you know, part of what they, if I'm right, that one of the options is for us as American Christians to start, start creating new viable communities. Part of the story that films could take is the creating of those communities. Mm. That's gonna be a story in itself. Yeah. I, I'd be very interested to know what these kids are doing, and, and you have to stand anyone under 60 is a kid to me. <laughs> uh, that what these young people are doing back east in terms of these ecological uh, communities, these, well, you know, there's a story there. Mm -hmm. What about the relationships that are taking place? What about between the relations between young men and women and children? And, you know, there's a story. There's got to be a story there someplace. So it may be closer to home than we think. Certainly, did all the story of the poor and and the people on the homeless thing like that. But there's some of that already being done, I think, that, that it's almost a natural instinct for a lot of artists to turn to people who have been neglected and things like that. Some of the stories may be even closer to home, though. Yeah, I love, yeah that's really, really amazing to even say, you know, the way that you, your conversion story involves sort of this, um, this undoing of stereotypes of Christians. And if there's a way to tell the story of how Christians are living into their faith in a way that isn't, you know, so explicit, but it just shows the life. Um, yeah. And, and it takes away these stereotypes. That's well, to take away the stereotypes, we're going to have to stop being stereotypes. <laughs> you know what I mean? In other words, we can't just give the same old message over and over again. You know, it's a wonderful message. It's the truth. But this is form and content again. This is what, what form does this have to take for people to really hear it? You can't just lecture them all the time. So we're, we're going to have to... So I said before, we're going to have to be models. And that's going to take some risks on our part. We're going to have to make some changes ourselves. Well, let me comment on one of the changes I think I feel most concerned about. My association, briefly, in my college years with the communist movement, 
led me to realize, and one of the things that, that made me flee from this was the kind of tendency towards totalitarian thinking mm. that we saw, of course, in communism and fashion and things like that. And I could see it inherent in even these young communists that we were kind of going in this direction. And there were two characteristics. One was that you demonized your opponent, mm. whether you called him a fascist or a racist or whatever it was. And whatever, they, they, they may have had obnoxious points of view, but they were still human beings. And, and you were meant to engage with them as human beings. We'll see communists and fascists weren't going to do that. And I'm afraid we're seeing some of that now that just labeling people, putting names on them. And it happened otherwise, too. It used to be communists and subversives that were used as labels very carelessly, too. But now it seems to be going more in the other direction. So if you call someone a fascist or racist, that takes a discussion over. You don't have to know anything about them. Wow. That, that demonizing, we have to be careful as Christians with that, mm -hmm. too. It's very easy for us to be very judgmental about people, particularly when their behaviors really are awful, you know, mm -hmm. life-denying kind of behaviors. And the other thing is that I saw was, and this worries me now, too, is uh, speech codes. Mm -hmm. As a young communist, you had to be careful what you said. You said the wrong word or the wrong label. I got into trouble once using just a word casually, and the older leader said, "Oh, wait a minute! What did you mean by that?" You know, and you can see that now in the universities now that if you say the wrong words, you can get lately. I've heard of people even getting suspended from their jobs by using an expression that was would have been innocuous in, in other times. So again, we have to be careful in our speech codes, too, that we're not speaking in code to each other, that we, we understand, and, and this, the gospel language is beautiful, and it, it, it's our precious treasure. We're not going to lose that. But we've got to understand that, that language can be an obstacle as, as well as a bridge. So mm. you know, we've got to look at ourselves in this, this too. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Oh, I could seriously just sit here all morning and <laughs> have this conversation. Um, man, is there anything else that, that you would... Well, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to talk, I, to talk with you. I was looking forward to it and oh my uh, gosh. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I have been so looking forward to this and um, yeah, certainly did not disappoint. Just your experience and perspectives. Um are so needed. So please keep writing, keep getting published, keep, okay. you know, um, yeah, it's, it's needed. And, um, I'm grateful and I know the rest of our listeners are really grateful too. So thanks well, for thank being Thank you. Here. And blessings on your work too, please. Yes. Okay. God you. bless you. God bless. Thank you so much for joining today's conversation. If you have any ideas, questions, reflections, feel free to leave us a comment on iTunes or reach out by email at info at faithworkbreast.com. 